Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Opera After Dark. except for people with very fancy music educations. Um, I was talking to Ian about this and saying I was researching this man, and he immediately was like, oh, yeah, and then named a piece that he's really famous for. <laughs> and I was like, all right. Either went to Yale. <laughs> yeah, is Tone it, a, it down. <laughs> is that a little, a little bit maddening for you when you're like, it oh, is. I'm, re- I'm, researching I'm researching this guy. This guy. You I've, probably I've never haven't heard, heard of him. him. Of course he has. <laughs> Of course he has. Uh, um, his name is George Entile, and I think I'm pronouncing that right. We're not sure, but that's what we're going to go with. Entile. Um, Entile. We've he had a long, a... a long debate trying to figure out the IPA of, of his name. Right. So We think it was Entile. If it's not, one person is allowed to comment on Facebook <laughs> or Twitter. And then I just want you to look, and if someone's already said something, you don't need to repeat it. What did Ian say? Did uh, he say Entile? We, we were texting, so uh, it was just like that guy. Um, so he gotcha. was a um, a contemporary composer um, around the time of like Stravinsky um, and things like that. So his music was very modern, um, and he he coined um, they coined this uh, nickname for him. And he was born in. Um, in Trenton, in Trenton, New Jersey, at the turn of the century. Oh. And I just want everybody... No, 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 no. Before we go into this, I just want everybody to guess what his nickname was. Um. His nickname? It's going to be the something of Trenton. The... Hmm. I... The composer of, of Trenton. The, the music dude of Trenton. Not the Mozart of Trenton. He was not called the Mozart of Trenton. He was called the Shostakovich of Trenton. Because <laughs> <laughs> each locale needs a Shostakovich. Every right? every location, right. every city with more than 2,000 people in it needs a Shostakovich. Elspeth, what are you of South Carolina? What When people say, oh yeah, Elspeth, she's the blank of South Carolina. Dolores Ajik of South Carolina. Ooh. <laughs> I was gonna say the nice. Jew of South Carolina. There were <laughs> so few where I grew up, but <laughs> oh, that's funny. The nice. Jewish okay. Dolores Ajik of South Carolina. <laughs> Jewish Dolores Ajik. Either she's the Jewish Dolores Ajik of South Carolina. Oh man, that is too funny. The, Shost- the Shostakovich of Trenton. Of Trenton. That's and did you? Naomi, had you heard of this composer before now? So I have heard of his name before, and I'm pretty sure that we briefly talked about him in our like 20th century music class, mm-hmm. but I really could not have told you much about him. If I had to take a wild guess, 
I would have placed his music sounding something like Stockhausen, but Stockhausen might be too late. So I have no, I know almost nothing about him. Well, and I think that's because the majority of his, his career was, um, was cut pretty short because of uh, World War II. Um, and his oh. career was mainly in, in Europe. Oh, okay. Um, mm. Before. And actually, I'll talk a little bit about him as a composer and famous works that he had. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about his life after he came back from Europe. Because actually, he was a really interesting um, guy that did a bunch of interesting stuff beyond uh, oh. the, okay. the realm of music. What right. are what are his dates? Just so I know we'll talk life later, but... His dates, he was born in July of 1900, and he died in February of 1959. So he wasn't that old when he passed away, I think, of um, a heart attack. Oh, gosh. That's actually interesting, though, because then uh, I think it's Aaron Copeland that's also born in 1900. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he was born in 1900 or 1901. But not Trenton. Not in Trenton. No, no, no. And Copeland lived a really long time, right? He was like ninety. He did. Yeah, he yeah. was pretty old. Yeah, but to think that their their lives literally ran parallel yeah. to each other. It's pretty crazy. And to mm-hmm. listen to their music next to each other, it's so radically different. Different. But we'll get into that into a little bit. All right. So he was born in Trenton, um, mm. and he grew up in a family of German immigrants. His father owned a shoe store, um, and George was raised bilingual, and he. Um, kind of sort of casually wrote like poetry and prose and and music from when he was a little kid even though he never formally graduated from high school or college what happened Mm. was um right he um well he wrote this um autobiography (laughs) just in 1945, he wrote him his own. He wrote his autobiography, um, which I, oh. I suggest everybody check out. It is called "The Bad Boy of Music." Oh my gosh! <laughs> he titled it that himself. That's crazy. He titled that himself. Hey, that's like ahead of his time, right? And in, in 1945, I, I feel like people weren't saying. Nobody was saying, "Oh, he's the bad boy of music. He's the right. bad boy of baseball." Right. Exactly. Right. Um, so. In the Bad Boy of Music, he talks about how. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was so. He was just um, crazy, crazy about music, loved music to the point where his mom got so irritated with him that she sent him out into the country where there was no, there were no pianos or anything, just Aww. so we could get this out of his system. And he claims we don't know if this is true or not. He claims in. I'm just going to keep saying it over and over again. He claims in the Bad Boy of Music. Um, <laughs> That he was undeterred by this, and he basically arranged to have a piano delivered to um, a local music store, and then just went and uh, played on that. Even though he was how old? Like young? He was. Yeah, or was he, I would was say he like, a young adult? I would say like thirteen or fourteen. Oh, but wow. he started formally uh, learning the piano when he was six. Okay. Um. When he was 16, he went back and forth from Trenton to Philadelphia to study under a man named Konstantin von Sternberg, who was a pupil of Franz Liszt. Um, oh. So Whoa. it's crazy just to think how close these generations were mm-hmm. musically, right? Um, and then in 1919, he started going to New York to work with uh, the composer Ernest Bloch. Hmm. 
Um, and initially, Block was really skeptical about teaching George, and he kept describing his composi- compositions as empty and pretentious. Oh. <laughs> hmm. Harsh. Not, not what I would expect from a bad boy. <laughs> from the bad boy. But Block eventually was worn down. Basically, he's like, by his energy and enthusiasm. Oh, <laughs> I guess okay. George just wanted it bad enough, you know. Okay. Um, so he never, again, never formally graduated from high school, never graduated from college. What happened was um, his first piano teacher, Von Sternberg, introduced him to a woman named uh, Mary Louise Curtis Bach, who was the founder of, later at that point, the founder of the Curtis Institute of Music. Wow. Mm. Um, I didn't know she had, she had Bach in her name. I guess that was her married name. I guess Curtis was oh. her maiden name. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but von Sternberg kept insisting to this woman that um, George was a genius and he was a really good person and he just kept pushing it so hard that um, Mary Louise Curtis Curtis Bach um, ended up being mm. his patron. Wow. Um, and she was his, his patron for the next 20 years, right? Whoa. So, Man. I mean, I... Look, I get that you're probably like beholden to a person financially for the rest of your life, but the idea of having a patron who just takes care of your expenses and allows you to just pursue music and and travel and and whatever, I mean, there's a great deal of appeal. Right, that That sounds pretty freaking great. You know? Uh, Yeah. Hey, even outside of music, it would be great to just have like a life patron. Like, (laughs) a life patron. Seriously. Hey, you know what? I think you're doing some good things in your life. Let me just uh, let me just pay for pay for everything. Let me just fund right. your existence so you let can keep doing your, some of that. Let me fund your existence, and you just focus like, on. <laughs> I mean, I if feel I like had... that's like a trust fund kid, actually. Kind of, but but I feel like it's different because the relationship between patron and composer, or what, whatever you would call that, right. You, you're investing in like society, or at least yes. I would and think like, that that would be the appeal. You're investing in that person's creative endeavors, right? Right. right. No, so. Tchaikovsky had a, a patron for a long he time. He sure did. He I sure think did. we've talked about her. I know. Yeah. Go back and listen to that episode. So, so yeah, you're you're investing in the person kind of, but also more so into their artistic output. Yes. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean... Yeah, I know. Yeah. I get it. So, did she make a good investment or what? <laughs> well, he's famous now, look, sort of. Yeah. That is sort of open to debate because I feel like once you <laughs> get to a certain level, what is good? You know? <laughs> um, it's all once you get uh, to a certain level. Are we talking coping good? I don't know. No, like what you once you get to a certain level of proficiency, I think whether something is good or not sort of depends upon the perceptions and the taste of the person that is listening to it. Sure, mm-hmm. subjective. It's very subjective. Like I can think of singers who are equally like good technically or whatever, and one of them I really like, and one of them I just like don't really like their voice even though they're really good right. mm-hmm. it's just not your preference it's just not like my my cup so of one tea. one might think that entile is somewhat shostakovich like but only if you're in trenton it's like you're if you're in trenton <laughs> you have that personal thought kind of and you're, you're shaped your opinion is shaped right 
So he was 19 when he met Mary Louise, and she paid for his life for, I said, the next uh, two decades. Mm -hmm. Um, And he moved to Philadelphia and studied there um, and wrote and composed. And he was really into, um, like, really obsessed with Stravinsky Mm -hmm. and those French composers. Oh, what were they called? The... um... Like Neo, like Neo and, and Poulenc and, and um, oh, uh, Lacis. Lacis, yeah, yeah. The six. Oh, Lacis, yeah. He was yes. su- super obsessed with them, and he finally decided that you know, um, I think what happened is that there was going to be a premiere of um, his first symphony, um, and before the performance could take place, Entile decided that he was going to leave and pursue a career in music in Europe. Wait, and a before lot of his say, own first symphony premiered? Yes. Um, oh. And a lot of people think that's sort of what hurt his chances of being like a recognized composer in his native land or whatever. So he was only in uh. Philadelphia um, for three years. So when he was 21, he got in a boat. And he sailed to Europe to make his name as, I quote, a new ultra-modern pianist composer. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I guess because he had all these money and these connections, he engaged um, Leo Ornstein's manager. And he started his European career with a concert at Wigmore Hall. Wow. Mm. Where's Wigmore Hall? in london london oh it's a big deal money can get you anything right can get you a performance at carnegie hall too Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um <clears throat> so this concert featured works by stravinsky and Debussy, as well as a couple of pieces that he wrote himself and i think it was fairly well received um okay i'd watch that. that yeah after that he spent a year in berlin and he gave concerts in Budapest and Vienna. And as he had desired, he achieved uh, notoriety for his sort of really avant-garde uh, style of music. Um, but he often had to pay the concert expenses out of his own pocket because we all know that contemporary classical music is not where one makes money. So um, out of Mrs. Curtis Bach's pocket. Well, it started to become uh, an issue because she reduced his monthly stipend Ooh. by half. Um, she was like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> um, was, that, it, was that like once he left for Europe, she was like, uh, okay, well, I can't see what you're doing. Or was it after some time? We don't know. Um, only about a year after he went to oh. Europe so that that has something to do with that um in the meantime um he could though you know he would send her letters asking her to fund like specific concerts and she would do that okay okay um in the meantime he met a Hungarian woman uh who he married in 1925 so he met a Hungarian woman who uh was uh the niece of the Austrian playwright author Schnitzel Oh, schnitzel, schnitzel, schnitzler. Sorry. Oh, schnitzler. Schnitzler. Um, and they got married in 1925. They stayed married for the rest of his life. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah. Did they like actually live together and and? They lived in sin for a couple of years before they got married. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we like to hear. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and in the fall of 1921, he actually got to meet his idol, Stravinsky, when he was in Berlin. Yay! Um, and they became quite good friends, and he encouraged Entile to move to Paris. And he went as far as arranging a concert to large Entile's career at the Fren- in the French capital, but the younger man um, didn't show up. Oh my god. He was just like, I'm going to go to Poland instead. And because of that, it sort of ripped the friendship between Stravinsky and Antile. Um, Classic bad boy. You know what I mean? Exactly. And also, there was a rumor going around that Antile was telling everybody that Stravinsky admired his work, kind of thing. Um, And this actually, Antile got really upset about this, and their friendship wasn't repaired until about 1941. Wow. Um, But yeah, so there was a a big sort of thing between them. Um, So he ended up going to Paris, and he found it kind of meh. Um. (laughs) So he ended up going to Paris after all of that, after blowing off Stravinsky? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so they lived, he and his wife lived in a one-bedroom apartment above um the very famous original shakespeare and company bookstore in paris oh, oh that's wow. cool yeah in there right yeah run by a woman named sylvia beach um who was very supportive of uh george's endeavors and so she introduced him to her circle of friends and customers which included people like eric satie who we've talked about in the past uh... episode and james joyce and ernest hemingway and ezra pound and all of these crazy people you know what this is just like? This hmm. is just like the movie Midnight in Paris. Have you watched the movie Midnight in Paris? I have. It kind of is like Midnight in Paris. Like all of these crazy, awesome, artistic people hanging out in mm-hmm. Paris. And who knew that Entile was part of that? He was probably in the movie. He was just like in the background, you know? Mm-hmm. Probably. Not he worth does, mentioning. He does look like <laughs> when Elspeth showed me the picture of him... It reminded me of the actor who played um, the the king on The Crown in, like, the first season. Oh, like Elizabeth's dad? Oh, yeah. 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 I know who you're talking about, but I can't... I don't know his name. I don't know the actor's name oh, either. I don't but... either. Shit. Yeah, we're not going to guess it. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll put a picture of Entile on the, on the blog. Let me let me look it up. Let me look it up. Okay. It should take me not that long. He would have been King Jared Harris. King George Jared VI. Harris. Jared Harris. Oh. Well, so one of the the weird things that Stravinsky and Entile have in common is that um they both had works that were premiered that caused uh riots. Ah, nice. Oh. So Stravinsky obviously had the right of spring where mm-hmm. people, you know, took to the streets and tore their clothes and right. got into fights and things like that. <laughs> um, so Entile was asked to make his Paris debut at the opening of the Ballet Soudois, which was this big, like, social event in Paris. So he programmed a bunch of his recent compositions, including things like, um, it's called the Airplane Sonata. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sonata Savage, things like that. And halfway through the performance, a riot broke out. Um, According to Entile, uh, and I quote, people were fighting in the aisles, yelling, clapping, hooting, pandemonium. 
The police entered and any number of surrealists, society personages, and people of all descriptions were arrested. Paris hadn't had such a good time since the premiere of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Huh. Uh, so the riot was actually filmed. Oh, it um, was? And I, really? I don't know if, if, if that still exists and you can access it, but um, it might have actually been uh, engineered. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, mean, how convenient that it was filmed, because otherwise, it, it sounds like the, the account that you just read was Entile's own account. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, like. Yeah, it's... people think it might have been engineered because um, a filmmaker named Marcel Herbier, who um, was directing a movie called. Uh, uh, oh, what's it called? L'Enhumane. He needed a riot scene that took place in a concert hall for his film. So people think that it might have been engineered just to <laughs> film this riot scene for this movie. So is that what he ended up using for his movie? I don't. I think so. Yeah. That um, is. Yeah. Um, I'm not buying suspicious. it. Suspicious. Yeah. Very so suspicious. Eric Satie and uh, Darius Mio, uh, Pablo Picasso, uh, Jean Cocteau were all in the audience. And NTL was delighted when Satie and Mio praised his music. But... Huh. um. The majority of the reactions to the performance were very cool at best. Uh, his technique was loud, brazen, and percussive. Huh. Critics Is wrote this... that he hit the piano rather than played it. Ooh. And indeed, he often injured himself um, by doing this. So I think he was Dang, just like that, slamming. Um, as part Is of his this... bad... Oh, wait, no, I gotta tell you this one thing. Okay, okay. As part of his like bad boy persona, apparently there were moments where Entile uh, had like a, a gun in his back pocket, and he would take oh it out and like place it on the piano. Oh my goodness, that's pretentious, danger, <laughs> and, and then like, like and like break his finger smacking the piano. What were you gonna say? Everybody's like Americans, Americans, Americans. and their guns. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I gonna say? Oh, was this the the piece that he's known for then the one that no that ian knows the piece that he's that's an excellent segue thank you um <laughs> the piece that he's known for is this composition called the ballet mechanique hmm. um and oh, okay this is bringing a lot back yeah to it is for music all right survey it's all okay. coming back to me <laughs> so um the ballet it was originally conceived uh to be accompanied by a film of the same name um, I don't think that ever worked out. Uh, apparently, the first productions of the work in 1925 and 1926 didn't include the film, which turned out to last only around 19 minutes, which is about half as long as the as the piece. Hmm. Uh, but Entile described his first big work as, <clears throat> okay, scored for countless numbers of player pianos, all percussive, like machines, all efficiency, no love, love in capital letters. <laughs> Written without sympathy, written cold as an army operates, revolutionary as nothing has been revolutionary. So the original what? conception, yeah, okay. The original conception was scored for uh, 16 specially synchronized player pianos, two oh grand pianos, hey. electronic bells, xylophones, bass drums, a siren, a siren and three airplane propellers. Um, but uh, there were a lot of difficulties trying to synchronize all these player pianos in the specific (laughs) way that he wanted so it resulted in a rewrite for a single player piano and multiple human pianists Uh. Uh, so the piece really consists of periods of music and interludes of silence set against the roar of airplane 
propellers. Entile described oh it gosh. as by far my most radical work. It is the rhythm of machinery presented as beautifully as an artist knows how. I'm a... Uh, Do we... Let's can listen you, to it. Yeah, before that, can you... And now in its me, entirety. <laughs> can you give me a description uh, or an explanation of a player piano? Uh, it's like... um. Like a pianola, it's a it's a piano that has um there's like like a roll in it. Oh, gotcha. You know, like in yeah. old timey saloons. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it plays without there being a person. Yeah, it's it essentially plays itself. Yeah, I think it's like if you look at inside of a music box, there's like rolls mm -hmm. that have notches that uh -huh. then hit levers, right? So right. player pianos are like a really complicated version of that, and it sometimes. They make it such that the keys actually depress on the keyboard. Yeah. Like when it's playing, so it looks, so it looks like, like a, a ghost. ghost is yeah. Playing the piano. Nice. Okay. Nice. All right. So we're we're gonna listen to this. What is it? It's ballet. Mechanique. 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 Is this something that Ian's played before? No, he hasn't like specialized in the xylophone part or the no. siren or something. I think there's just too much shit. Yeah. You know. I mean, he's he hasn't been credited on any particular piece playing the airplane propeller no although they played this piece by um john luther adams that there is one segment that is just uh like fire sirens hmm. <laughs> this is one movement the whole um, movement is just i would like hate that fire truck sirens. i did hate it you're right when you hear a siren the whole point of a siren is like I can't wait until that's away from me. Like, can that? So yeah, they like faded in and out in this like oh. amorphous rhythm that I didn't um, understand, but was probably very precise. Um, and I think the piece was all about like um, like the sounds of the world around you kind oh, of thing. Man. So this was like invocative of the city, and oh, I hated it. Terrible, terrible. It does sound Sorry, terrible. John Luther Adams. I know you're not listening because you're probably in Alaska living off the land. Um, <laughs> Is that where he lives in Alaska? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's very so, <laughs> ballet mechanique. Here, Here we, we go. <laughs> Ta-da! Uh, 
We should just have an airplane propeller as our sound effect. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Now everybody associates. I feel like when it comes to airplane propellers and classical music, it's always like Fly to the Valkyries, but with planes, like a war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah a yeah. war setting of Fly to the Valkyries. Mm-hmm. So, Entile was really excited about this piece. You know, it's his first big scale work. He's really passionate about it. So, he worked really hard to promote it, to get a bunch of people to come. He even did this thing where he started this rumor that he was in Africa and he, like, vanished, like he was kidnapped. Wait, um, what? No, guy. yeah, yeah. He was visiting Africa and he sort of engineered, like, a, a disappearance. So, people, um, the work would get, like, media attention. Because they're like the missing composer, George Gentile, kind of thing. Um, He's like that's the, bananas. the doofus of classical music, not the bad boy. <laughs> He's like the annoying hey. guy. Uh, so the piece premiered in Paris in 1926, and it was sponsored by an American patroness, not Mary Louise Curtis Bach. I don't know who this woman was. Hmm. Um, but at the end of the concert, people were, were so pissed at her that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> they... Um, they um at the end of the concert they uh basically threw um three baronesses and a duke threw a blanket over her and then like tossed her out of the building you're kidding no that must have been the weirdest thing to witness yeah throw a blanket over her head get her out of here um obviously enraged some concert goers who objected um to it by saying they're eardrums were basically getting blown out by just like noise um and others were really vocal supporters of the work and the concert ended with a riot in the street so another riot another riot this one i think not engineered by a filmmaker (laughs) Mm. a true legit real riot and there were no countries that came out of this riot it was just a good old-fashioned riot that was a reference. Right. That was a reference. To the Mucrella Portage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a new They've country was a lot not of, formed. Doing a lot of riots these past right. couple yes. episodes. Um, so the piece actually premiered the next year in New York at Carnegie Hall in a slightly pared down version. I don't know hmm. how pared down it would Only be. Only one airplane propeller. Only one airplane propeller right. instead of three. Um, the concert... Apparently, it, it started well, but according to the concert's promoter and producer, uh, the wind, when the wind machine was turned on, because I guess there was a wind machine, all hell kind of broke loose. <laughs> Everybody's wigs um, flew off. Kind of. <laughs> so, um, audience members were, like, clutching their programs in their hats. Um, oh, and apparently, yeah. one guy, because, you know, you gotta love New York, um, he tied a handkerchief to his cane and like waved it in the air as like a, a white flag of surrender. <laughs> surrender. What year was that in? 1927. Ah, uh, gotcha. Um, and apparently, uh, the audience got a real big kick out of the fact that um, one of the sirens, I guess they didn't do a sound test beforehand, failed to uh, go off on cue. Um, oh no! Despite the poor musician like frantically cranking it in the background, like he knows how it's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently it only really uh the noise only really started going after the piece was over and the audience was leaving the hall is when it finally like kicked in to get to the <laughs> climax uh, that was probably terrifying it yeah, was leaving and all, all of like, a sudden the siren starts um american critics were pretty hostile towards the piece as one <laughs> could imagine 
calling it a bitter disappointment and dismissing the ballet mechanique as boring, artless, and naive. And Entile, being the bad boy of music, was really hoping that this would also create riots in the streets of New York, but the audience was just like bored and they walked away. Right. So there were no yeah. riots in the street. They're like, Jeez. I gotta catch the subway. Was there back a... to Brooklyn. So this is the ballet mechanique. Was there a ballet that was performed with it? or it's... No, it was designed initially to be played along with this film oh, the called The Ballet right. Mechanique mm-hmm. um, that actually, I think in 1930, maybe it did have one performance where they did that. Although I'm not sure, because like I said, the movie itself, the short film, is only about half the length of the, the actual piece. Right. Uh, so hmm. I do not know. Um, but Entile never really recovered from that sort of disappointment, and he never really got mm-hmm. his reputation back as a composer. Um, so he went oh. back to Germany, and he worked as the assistant musical director of the Staatstheater in uh, Berlin, and he wrote music for the ballet and for the theater. Um, That's not too shabby. Not yeah. too shabby. In 1930, he premiered his first opera. Ah, oh, so called, he does have he, an opera. He does, called Transatlantic. Um, I've, I, I've never heard of this work and I don't know if there's any kind of recording ever anywhere, but apparently it's all about American politics and gangsters and it was premiered at the Frankfurt opera and people really uh, liked it, but I've never, I've never heard of it. This doesn't really work for an opera, but it would be super funny to have a, like a musical that's called transatlantic and everybody's talking in that transatlantic, uh, accent, you know? Oh, like Captain Hepburn? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just obnoxiously transatlantic. Well, this actually is also an excellent segue. Thank you, Kyle. Speaking of Catherine Hepburn and Hollywood. Uh So, um, Entile and his wife were in in Berlin in the 30s. And obviously around 1933 is the rise of the the Nazi party in Mm -hmm. Germany. Um, And they are smart enough to realize that something bad's going to happen. And they, they leave the country and they end up in Hollywood. Oh, and that's where they uh, spend uh, the rest of their lives. So about 1936, they moved to Hollywood and Antile became a sought after film composer. Nice. And he wrote over 30 scores for directors like Cecil B. DeMille and Nicholas Ray. Um, Anything that we would know? Any movies that we would know? I don't (laughs) don't know. I don't know many. I don't know many films from that era, so. Um, there's one in 1950 called In a Lonely Place starring Humphrey Bogart. Oh, wow. Oh. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. And Entile was very confident in his ability of his music to save a weak film. He said, if I say so oh. myself, I've saved a couple of short lives. <laughs> <laughs> With my music. With my music. Um, so... He actually, later in, in his life, he accepted a commission from CBS Television Network to compose a theme for their newsreel and documentary film series, The 20th Century, which was narrated by Walter Cronkite. That oh. is also cool. So he also had a bunch of other interests. He, um, under the pseudonym Stacy Stacy Bishop, he wrote a murder mystery called <gasps> Death in the Dark. Um, <laughs> And uh, one of the characters was based on Ezra Pound. He was the film music reporter and critic for the magazine Modern Music from 1936 to 1940. Um, He also published a book of war predictions 
entitled The Shape of the War to Come, which is before World War II. He was uh, part of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, oh, um, wow. which put on exhibits of artwork banned hmm. in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the most interesting things about him... Oh, that book, The Bad Boy of Music, when it was published in 1945, became a bestseller. Oh, my Whoa. gosh. Who knew? Jeez. Um, it sounds... I mean, there were some serious times and some not great times but it sounds like he kind of lived an interesting and probably enjoyable life yeah well the one of the really interesting things about him um do you know who the actress hedy lamar is that sounds familiar but so she's a very uh famous film actress in the 1930s and the 1940s and in beyond just being an actress she was also a scientist so Hedy Lamar and George uh, became friends, and Lamar, uh, who was fiercely pro-American, I think she was Austrian hmm. uh, initially, she realized that uh, single radio-controlled torpedoes could severely damage or sink enemy ships, which caused irreparable damage. Um, but these radio-controlled torpedoes could easily be detected and jammed by broadcasting interference at the frequency of the control signal, which caused the, tor- the torpedoes to go off course. So her first husband was a munitions manufacturer, and she gained a lot of knowledge about torpedoes from him. This is intense. Um, yeah. This is crazy. So Entile and Lamar developed the idea of using frequency hopping. Um, in this case, using a piano roll to randomly change the signal sent between the control center and the torpedo at short bursts within a range of 88 frequencies on the spectrum because there are 88 black and white keys on the piano. Um, the specific code for the sequence of frequencies could be held identically by the controlling ship and the torpedo. So this basically encrypted the signal, huh. and it was impossible for the enemy to scan and jam all 88 frequencies because this would have required way too much power for them. Huh. Um, so in 1944, uh, Entile and Hedy Lamar got a patent for this early version of frequency hopping. Um, and even though it was this amazing thing, it was met with opposition by the U.S. Navy, and it was not adopted during uh, the Second World War. Huh. Um, but it was implemented in 1962 when it was used by the U.S. military ships during a blockade of Cuba. Dang. Um, and because That's of this crazy. lag in development, yeah, um, the patent was little known until 1997. <laughs> yeah, and then essentially in 1998, an Ottawa wireless technology developer, uh, YLAN Inc., acquired a 49% claim to the expired patent from Lamar for an undisclosed amount of stock. Um, and basically this frequency hopping uh, is basically the technology that we use now for like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. You're kidding. No, I'm dead serious. What? That's amazing. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And he also wrote articles for Esquire, but whatever. Who cares? <laughs> This is like way more, way more interesting. But yeah, isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Wow, a man of many talents. Mm -hmm. It's funny that like, so it sounds like as a music composer, pretty good. Pretty successful. Pretty good. Pretty, um, I think he was fairly successful. I think uh, he was really experimental and liked to push the envelope. But I think he was Mm -hmm. more notorious than talented if that makes sense. right right i think it's i the feel like sum he really of... knows how to how to sell himself exactly right, right. it's the sum of the parts that distinguishes yeah entail. exactly and tile and tile wow so, yeah 
And now we have Bluetooth. And now we have Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. I mean, Surely. also, let's not let's not sell Hedy Lamar short on that. <laughs> I do think it's pretty awesome that he seemed to collaborate very willingly with a woman. Like, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And then very also nice. his pen name for his murder mystery. I'm Stacey. guessing Stacy Bishop. Stacy Bishop. Well, Stacy's couldn't. I guess it could have been a man's name. Yeah. A man's name. I do. I kind of want to find that book. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Not very good. Everybody wow. for Christmas is getting the bad boy of music. Right. <laughs> it'll be the first in the Opera After Dark book club. Right. Well, it'll. It probably follows along the same ideas as Berlioz's memoirs because I think a lot of it is probably not factual and they're just like embellishing and making stuff up. Right. So it's a long tradition of composers making themselves look better. Right. Wonderful. Trying to craft their own legacy. Exactly. Hey. Exactly. It's all about branding. What else can you do? Yeah. It's all about branding. He called himself the bad boy of music so many times that people just started calling him the bad boy of music who started right. calling him the shostakovich of trenton i don't know <laughs> <laughs> probably him Let's probably him probably himself himself and himself and himself <laughs> oh boy well i learned a lot today yeah i'm glad i'm glad that everybody this... hopefully learned something and anyone who's a big fan of his will let me know if we missed anything are there pieces that you think we should check out or yeah mm-hmm. you know where to find us social media facebook we're, uh twitter we're around any one of our names at operaafterdark.com hooray um thanks for listening you guys and i hope that you enjoyed that and learned a little something i did i did certainly i had never heard of this guy before i knew it all you did you're just keeping <laughs> it to yourself as always yeah the only thing that rang a bell was the ballet mechanique that's like what he's yeah He's known I remember it. learning about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll listen to, to some more of that now as we play out. But Sounds before good. that, I'm Kyle. I'm Elspeth. I'm Naomi. Thanks Bye. for listening. the sounds of rioting oh i surrender this is horrible <laughs> my wig my hat i yes. surrender a recreation <laughs> that's what everybody sounds that's what the audience sounds like at carnegie hall in the no. 1920s <laughs> exactly Mm. Oh, this is so mm. perplexing. Bye. I don't understand. <laughs> My transa- transatlantic accent. <laughs> what oh, is this? I don't know what this is. Nelly, right. have you ever heard anything like this before? That's good.